What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everybody. This is the Cricket Badger podcast. Each badger marks the track with its own scent. His black legs are short but very powerful for digging. The name badger probably comes from the French word bécher, meaning digger. Good day, Cricket Badgers everywhere. Welcome to another edition of the Cricket Badger podcast. And it's a good one this week. We welcome Phil Walker, the editor-in-chief of Wisdom Cricket Monthly magazine. Well worth a buy this week, by the way, because I'm in it. The Badgers in it, talking about the 100 in a big feature they've got about the state of English cricket. It's worth a few quid buying that from your local news agents. Myself and Phil have a bit of a post-mortem, really, after the South Africa series. We look at where England are as a test match side. Joe Root's captaincy, the future of Joe Denley and Joss Butler. That's the most controversial bit. Me and Phil have a little bit of a disagreement on the Joss Butler situation. And then towards the end of the podcast, I catch it with Mark Dexter. Mark is a former Sky reporter, but he's very much an Olicanian. The Olicanian Cricket Club on the 25th of August, as Ben Stokes was scoring that incredible century to beat Australia at Headingley. Just down the road, an arson attack on the pavilion in Ilkley was not what that cricket club needed. They're trying to rebuild themselves from the ashes. And Mark comes onto the podcast to talk about that and how you might be able to help. Obviously, not everybody's got a huge amount of money to throw around, but if you can help the Olicanian Cricket Club, listen to the end of this podcast anyway. It would be much appreciated by them. Thanks as well to the Experience Travel Group for supporting the podcast, running some great trips out to Sri Lanka in March to support Joe Roots England. So if you fancy being out there for one of those two test matches or both or a combination of, they can sort out all kinds of packages for you, help you see the cricket and enjoy the country of Sri Lanka. ExperienceTravelGroup.com So Phil and Mark on this week's Cricket Badger podcast. Thanks for listening. Keep those ears tuned because it's a good one this week. It's that Badger style. Phil Walker, Editor-in-Chief, Wisdom Cricket Monthly. Good to have you on the Cricket Budget Podcast. How are you? Yeah, afternoon, James. Uh, very well, actually, down here in, in bleak, grey London town. Um, it's, it's nice to, to be guesting on a different podcast. Our one goes out most weeks. This is, this is a good, good change of scene for me, actually. Well, that's how you got booked on this one, wasn't it? Because I listened to you Indeed. the other day and made a comment on Twitter and you, you responded. So we'll get you on to yeah. the, uh, the Badger Podcast. 
we're going to get on to the, the Joss Butler issue, which, which, which tickled your fancy on Twitter in due course, no <laughs> doubt. And, and we can have a, have a bit of a debate on that one, no doubt. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you, you did accuse me on Twitter of uh, disagreeing with you um, on everything. I don't think that's the case. Cause I did actually think <laughs> you came up with some quite good points on your podcast, it must be said. But on the Joss Butler one, yes, we will disagree, I think. But uh, let, let's go back to the winter as a whole so far. Obviously, three mm. test series going, going through the winter months. We've had two of them. New Zealand, from my perspective, I don't think England learned a huge amount when they went to, to New Zealand. But I think from South Africa, in my opinion, the number of questions were answered during that four-test match series, albeit against a fairly weak South African side. Would you agree with that summation? I think considering where they were after four days of cricket in South Africa at Centurion, when they'd been you know, unhinged by the Lurgy, Joe Root looked dead on his feet. Uh, and they got beat comfortably in that test match. Considering where they were staggering out of Centurion, they are absolutely thrilled to have, to have taken this series. And you're right, I think a few, of these, a few of these question marks, a few of these issues around selection and around the, the composition of the team are, are slowly beginning to reveal themselves. Talking of Joe as well, it's been a real up-and-down winter for him. It's been an up-and-down tenure for his captaincy full stop, I think. But for him to have pulled it around in South Africa after that first test and after the reversal in New Zealand. Uh, he said himself after Joe Berg, after they clinched the 3-1, he says it's the, the greatest achievement of my career as a captain. And it's hard to avoid that conclusion looking from afar as well. It's his team now, probably more than ever before. When I was working at Yorkshire, we're going back a few years now, you came up to interview Joe Root at Headingley and he was a much more fresh-faced youngster at that time. He's gone through a bit since then, hasn't he? But I, I, I think from his perspective, Ashley, as you say, he's starting to actually make this team his own. Chris Silverwood coming in as coach, I think, has helped him because they've had a fresh outlook there. They've obviously sat down, thought about how they want this test side to play. Mm-hmm. He's starting to play under his kind of brand now, isn't it? And that is a huge advantage for him. I interviewed Chris Silverwood when he was at Essex a couple of years ago. Uh, I went down to Essex. I didn't go to interview him specifically. He was part of a number of interviews I was doing, just trying to look at the way that the club was run. And he wandered into the the chief exec's office, and we only had a chat for a few minutes, but I remember he said, this is just after you got the job, I said, how, how is this team going to play under you in four-day cricket? And he said one word, he said, attrition. And that's what he has built his coaching philosophy on, staying in the game, playing solid, pragmatic, sometimes dry, sometimes low heartbeat, low-tempo cricket, to stay in four- and five-day cricket. You saw it at Essex, and now you're beginning to see it play out as well uh, with England. It's interesting that this return to kind of old-fashioned test match virtues is coinciding with a bunch of young, sort of thrusting kids coming through as well. So it's a good mix, I think. You have the sort of vitality and, and exuberance of, of youth, no fear cricketers, from Pope to Best to Curran and so on, to Sibley to Crawley. But on the other side of the ledger, you've got some kind of some some pretty gnarled old hands in there now run by a kind of arch pragmatist in, in Silverwood. He's not a demonstrative bloke. He's not a particularly you know, grand orator or anything like that. But he dovetails well with Root. Um, I mean, you can tell us about about Silverwood. You'd have probably rubbed shoulders with him for many years around around Headingley and so on. But he's, he's, he's a very well respected figure within the game. And while he wasn't a particularly sexy appointment at the time, you know, Gary Kirsten was sniffing around the job. That would have been a more maybe glamorous pick as coach. It was in its own way quite a quite a kind of daring move for England, really. They don't appoint English coaches. I think people and, forget how good a player Chris Silverwood actually. I mean, I, I watched him play a lot for Yorkshire, and he's a very fine bowler. Um, obviously, played for England well. in 
in, in test matches as well, yeah. And uh, a very, very good player. And he understands the game. And, you know, you're right, that success that he had with Essex. And Anthony McGrath is obviously building on that. Another Yorkie down at Essex as well. doesn't come by accident, does it? You know, you don't suddenly get a, a winning side by accident. It's because you actually understand first-class cricket. You understand how to make the red ball do the job for you. And yeah, it, seems, it seems touch wood that gone are the days of now 30 to 3. You know, that, that might not be massively entertaining but I think most of us that love our test match cricket don't mind that you know if you can get to the end of day one pretty unscathed then you can actually make more of day two and day three and build from that and then win test matches which is what we saw in South Africa wasn't it indeed and I think it's what we've seen in test cricket generally over the last couple of years there's been a a recalibration I think of of the the way that the best test teams are approaching the game you you see it with India you especially see it with Australia Uh, and Steve Smith in that ashes down under a couple of years back, he made it quite clear that, that his way was the best way and his way is, is the timelessly best way of going about a test match innings. Absorbing pressure, waiting for second new balls, waiting for second, third, fourth spells from quick bowlers and that's when you, you kind of put the foot on and, and, and you ram home that initiative that you've painstakingly built through the first half of, the, of that first day or the first 50 overs of, of, of your first innings. The penny has dropped with England, uh, it seems, and they are developing a top order. Burns, of course, you know, did his cruciate playing football, but he will be back. You imagine in that top three, Sibley looks like he has the stickability and the temperament, and he also, of course, has the runs in first-class cricket. And while Crawley is, is a bit more of a punt, a bit more of a gamble, he, he's also shown glimpses there that he can form part of the nucleus of a, of a, of a batting lineup over the next two or three years. So I think things are beginning to fall into place. But then we've said that with this team before, that this team is endlessly promising and it doesn't always come to fruition. So, so we'll have to wait and see. But as of now, as I say, considering where they were on December the 30th after that Centurion horror show, they'd be absolutely thrilled. What has pleased me, Phil, is that they've actually... I mean, anybody that's followed at Cricket underscore Badger on Twitter will know that I've just been banging on for what seems to be years on end boring people senseless by saying just pick the right players pick them because they've scored runs against the Red Bull in county championship and for me they've actually started doing that as you say the penny has dropped and Sibley is one of those guys that he's he's got no thrills has he 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 just stands there he looks like a a stubborn bugger and that's how he plays and he he will bat (laughs) all day long for you he will frustrate he's not pretty but he does a job at the top of the order and that's exactly what England have been crying out for yeah, indeed, and the same applied to Rory Burns as well. You know, Burns made a thousand runs a season, albeit some of those runs would have been made on pretty flat tracks at the Oval. But he, he made a thousand runs five years in a row. He was the standout batsman, English batsman, of county cricket over the last half a decade. So it was crying out for him to be selected. Um, one thing I would quickly add, and I think this is just a part of our kind of collective psyche in, in England, how we follow our cricket. Rory Burns was written off after half a dozen test match knocks. Do you remember? He, he, you know, he nicked off twice at Lords against Ireland and people were saying there's no chance he can be a test match player. No chance. We had the same thing with Sibley. Sibley was written off as a test match player after four innings in, in New Zealand. We still suffer from this knee-jerk reaction. We, 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 we write players on and then we write players off far too fast, I find. Yeah. Your point is, is bang on. We have to respect county runs. But we also have to recognise that the game's landscape has shifted so much. So there are players who do not play very much red ball cricket, but whose 
international pedigree is such that they have to be considered at least in the conversation. Go on. Let me come on to that in a second, because I'm going to ask you a question about White versus Red Bull in, in just a moment's time. Just one last word on Joe Root's captaincy, and on captaincy in general, really. I guess the kind of same applies to any walk of life. I mean, you're editor-in-chief at Wisdom. If you have a month where all of your people working for you, whether they're freelance or, or not, get everything in on time, come up with fantastic ideas, write superb copy, your job is easy. If everything's delayed, if everybody writes rubbishly, your job is a lot harder. And it's the same with the captain, isn't it? You know, if you've got a team that's performing, all of a sudden you look fantastic as a cricket captain. And I always used to think with Ricky Ponting, you know, things were going badly. It was 120 for no loss. Glenn, you take yep. one end. Shane will take the other end. Five weeks later, you're a, you're a wonderful captain again. And it can be it can be made to look very bad by poor performances. You can make, be made to look very good by good performances, can't you? Yeah, bang on, absolutely. It, Joe's story is is a, is a fascinating one. I, I was in Australia for the majority of the Ashes, what two years ago now, and it was his first big tour. Obviously, Stokes wasn't there for reasons that we know. He was handed a you know a seam attack featuring at various points. Craig Overton and Tom Curran, who are good, honest brokers, you know, medium, fast, fast, medium, county seamers, but not going to stand a chance of taking wickets in Australia. He, Mason Crane was bowling spin by the, by the end of that tour. And Joe was understatedly magnificent, I thought, on that tour. He didn't make a hundred, but he, he played some, some excellent rear guard, up yours style innings in the midst of a, of a horror tour, a terrifying tour, uh, where... It would have broken a lesser man, I think. I think he learned quite a lot about himself as a cricketer on that tour. And I know that he, he got the respect of a, of a lot of Australian pundits because of the way that he stood up to them. And while Joe is quite a soft-spoken lad and he's, you know, butter wouldn't melt in his mouth kind of demeanor, certainly in, in the early years, quite an impish, unassuming kind of bloke, the reality is, is that he's tough as, tough as anything, as you will well know. He's, he's, he's tough as teak as a cricketer. And... I think he's now got over that period of self-doubt that all cricketers have, and everybody has, full stop. But Joe had that. He was losing a lot of test matches. He was having moments where things were working out, but it was two steps forward and one step back a lot of the time with this test side. You feel, albeit tentatively, that they may now have just worked out the right kind of balance, tempo, and broadly the right personnel to move forward. The, The one caveat I would add with Joe is that he's still such a preciously gifted batsman and the numbers are not entirely comforting from an English fan's point of view. And while we recognise that there is always going to be a little trade-off, and Andrew Strauss famously said a few years back when he was captain of England, you take a few notches off the average, the glory of being the boss, in so many words. We have to keep a, a, a note on Joe. He looked like he was working through a few technical things in South Africa. Uh, he's very studious when it comes to his batting, as, we, as, as everybody knows. Uh, we have, just have to keep an eye on that, I think. As things stand, many, many reasons to be cheerful. Uh, but you have to hope that that celestially brilliant batsmanship that we saw for the first five years of Joe's career it doesn't fall away as the pressures of the job rain down on his shoulders. I heard Alistair Cook say during the final test match when he was on Sky, he said that it's, it's ironic or it's, it's just kind of sod's law that by the time you become kind of full up of the job and, and almost fed up with the job and it's time to move on, that's when you are the best captain. And that's just, you know, it's just <laughs> the way the world works, isn't it? You've got all the experience in the world, but you're kind of fed up with doing it. Um, and I hope Jerry won't get fed up just yet. I, I wonder though, Phil, you know, with, 
knowing Joe a little bit and how he loves batting and how he loves cricket and how he loves being England captain, I wonder if they did yeah. take it off him now. And there aren't too many candidates, to be honest, to, to give it to. But, but if they did take it off him now or in the next 12 months, whether we'd probably see a bit of a downturn in Joe Root's form for the sort of 12 months or two years after that because he would be the ex-England captain and fed up that he didn't have it anymore. Possibly. It, it, it's hard to say, isn't it? Some players have been revitalised by having the captaincy removed from them. Other players go through a slump when their reduced circumstances present themselves. It's hard to say. What I would say on Joe is that if he was a captain through to the end of, of the next Ashes tour, so what, two years from now, he would have captained England in more test matches than any other player. So he's already quite an experienced England captain. It still feels like we're in second or third gear with Joe's captaincy tenure, but the truth of it is that he's already captained in many, many test matches. And I think it would be 59 games that he would have been in charge of. This is from memory from a piece I wrote a few weeks ago. By the end of that Ashes. And he, even, if, even if you were to, to shake hands on it after the end of that time, he'd still only be 31, 32. So he'd still have, in theory, another two, three, four years as a batsman, you know, to go after Cook's record and to even go after the, the, the biggest records out there. This is what we hope and dream for Joe, because just like Cook, Joe is a batsman first and a captain second, I think. And in the, the fullness of time, he will, be, he will want to look back as England's most prolific test run scorer. That's what everybody hoped would be the Joe Root legacy, the epitaph on Joe when he began back in Nagpur in 2012. And that's what we want to see come the end of this already amazing career. Where the captaincy fits into it, in the fullness of time, we'll have to wait and see. But as of now, let's keep a smile on our face because he's done an amazing job over the last month. Hi, my name is Brian Lara and you're listening to the Cricket Batcher podcast. Discover Sri Lanka at your own pace. Take tea in style and be bowled over by its beauty with the experts' experienced travel group. March is an ideal time to visit Sri Lanka from a weather perspective, so why not make Sri Lanka your winter holiday destination and enjoy five days of cricket in one of the world's most picturesque venues. Experience Travel Group's Curious Travellers Cricket Tour. There are no boundaries, but plenty of extras. Call 0207 924 7133 or visit experiencetravelgroup.com. Joe Denley, is he good enough? I don't think so. I think I, I love Joe Denley. If uh, in a parallel universe my daughter brought him home, I'd be delighted. But <laughs> as a number three in a test match, I don't think he's got quite enough. I think he's a very good player, plays some beautiful cover drives, but he just lets himself down a little bit. And the inability to get a big score, if you've got ambitions to, are you fostering ambitions to go after that world number one tag in the test match arena? You can't yeah. have a number three that averages 30. Yeah. I think you know broadly my, my thoughts on this because I, I spoke about this on the Wisdom podcast, the one that you listened to before you went to sleep and it kept you awake. <laughs> what, what, uh, what a compliment that is. Yeah, Joe, he averages 36 and a bit from 210 first-class games. He's a month away from his 34th birthday. Joe Denley's one of the most stylish, watchable players in English cricket and has been since he emerged. And I remember seeing him in 2009 as an England ODI opener. Uh, a bit of a dasher, kind of had a touch of the Michael Slaters about him in his demeanour, in the way that he carried himself. Very watchable player. But the numbers across the board don't really stack up. They, they don't speak of a, of a prolific 
run wrangler, one who's going to just churn them out week after week, month after month. He's always going to be watchable, and his his upturn in his career in the last two or three years has been one of the loveliest stories about English cricket. But there is there is having a a second third wind in your career, and fame, and, and of course in Joe's case, he went to Middlesex. He was playing Middlesex twos after a, a miserable two or three years there before going back to Kent and regenerating, if you like, revitalising his career. But there's there's that, and then there's batting first drop for England in a Test match. My personal feeling is that I think he is. He's taken his test career pretty much as far as he can go. Uh, I, think, I think to have made six fifties in 14 games, to have been involved in an Ashes series where he influenced a great win at the Oval with that 90-odd, 94, I think he, he got. You just feel like the ceiling has already been touched by, for Joe Denley as, a, as an international player. And, of course, time isn't on his side either. There's no lack of young options as well. To, to come into that middle, top to middle order. And while it's a brutally unsentimental and rather ruthless call by England to remove him from the, South Africa, from the Sri Lanka series, if indeed that story in The Guardian is true, and we don't know this for sure, but if it is true and he doesn't appear in Sri Lanka, then it's, it's harsh, but I think it's fair. Uh, I would also add, from what you've seen in South Africa, he was very tied down against the turning ball. And these are on pitches that are not conducive to spin. Maharaj is a lovely left-arm bowler. Uh, but Denley, after they blocked off his outshot, his outshot being coming down the wicket, getting to the pitch, lofting it over mid-off. Once they'd blocked that off for Cape Town for the second test, there wasn't really anywhere for Joe to go. And they put, put two men short on the offside, bowled that corridor just outside and off stump, put the man back at long off, put the man out for the drag down, and there was very, very little option for Joe against the turning ball. In the end, he got pinned on the back leg, uh, should have been playing forward and was, was given out LB. He would be facing trial by spin, I think, uh, in Sri Lanka if he were there. Uh, and I just feel like it's inevitable that, that they will shake hands on Joe's, Joe's test career at some point, whether they do it before Sri Lanka or whether they do it for the start of the summer. Uh, <coughs> remains to be seen. But I can understand the logic harsh as it feels. Uh, and I don't like to say it because he's a very lovable cricketer. Absolutely. I, I just think looking back at the best teams that have ever played the game, yeah, the Australians notably, they would drop a person averaging 42 for somebody that they thought could average 48. You know, they, 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 didn't, yeah. they didn't stand on ceremony. There was no sentiment because they wanted to be the very best. Therefore, very good players made way for excellent players. And you know, I think that's the kind of attitude that England need to do. Well, who comes in at number three? They're talking about Bairstow, whether that's the right move or not, I'm not so sure. But um, I think Joe Denley, as you say, the, the ceiling has uh, probably been reached as far as he's concerned. And if England wants to improve, they need to go down a different route. I've seen people say as well that you know, take him to Sri Lanka because his uh, leg spin would help. But for me, he's about as close to the front line as General Melchett was in Blackadder. You know, he, he, he's not... He, isn't, you know, he came on and bowled a few overs at Joburg, and he was absolute filth. And, yeah, I know he's yeah. concerned it, and I know... You know he, but he's not, he's not a leg spinner that's going to threaten a Sri Lankan batsman. It's not a justification to keep a player in at number three in a test seat team if they can bowl some part-time leggers. I would just say he bowled all right at Port Elizabeth. I think I thought he bowled quite, quite threateningly in Port Elizabeth, albeit... In a situation when you are going for a win, you're, you're able to give runs away. The reality of test cricket is that often that's not the case, that containment is just as important as, as thrusting, attacking cricket as well. So, yeah, it, look, I, I think overall I agree with you. I would also add, I'd love to be wrong, 
I really would I, I'm on this one. I'd love to be wrong. He's great to watch from an aesthetic point of view. He's a really you know, lovable character as well with a proper backstory. He's not a kind of a public school boy, you know. He's been around the block a little bit and, uh, and you can see why they want him to work. Uh, yes. But I think if they shake hands on it, I think he's pragmatic enough, Denley, to say, OK, look, I've had a great time of it. I've had more out of England test cricket than I ever thought I would. Uh, he's played 14 games that would have looked a million miles off when he was 30, kicking around in Middlesex twos. So, yeah, I think this is the way that they will go. I understand why this is the way that they will go. But, it's, but it is unfortunate for a, for a very, very charming and lovable cricketer. I think that phrase, I'd love to be wrong, couldn't be more appropriate. I've watched him and he plays a cover drive and you think, oh, fantastic, he's cracking it. Go on, Joe, get your first hundred. Yeah. And then he's out for yeah. 30 and you think, oh, well, you just can't carry on like this. And it's just frustrating after a while. Excuse me, Mr. Badger. Sorry to interrupt. I've heard Sri Lanka is a lovely country and a great place to see some cricket. Is there anyone you know who can help me get out there to see the cricket and have a fantastic holiday? It sounds like a perfect time to tell you about the Experience Travel Group then. They're a London-based company with a team in Sri Lanka who put together private tours which include a fantastic cricket package with great seats, lunches, top boutique hotels and after-match drinks to meet fellow enthusiasts. Okay. I love my cricket, but my partner also wants this to be a holiday. Can they make that happen? As Sri Lanka specialists, this is where the experienced travel group come into their own. They will put together a tour that helps you to properly discover the country. They cater for people who want to watch England play cricket abroad and also enjoy a fun, immersive and luxurious holiday in Sri Lanka. Are they really as good as they sound? Well, if I didn't think so, I wouldn't be mentioning them now, would I? This March will be the third trip they've done. Last year, they successfully hosted over 150 cricket and travel fans. 100% of which said they would use the experienced travel group again. It sounds great. How do I book? All you have to do is call 0207-924-7133 or visit experiencedtravelgroup.com. Basically agreed so far, Phil. I think on everything we've talked about, we're going to get to that stage now where we're not going to agree. (laughs) Red ball versus white ball. I am a big advocate of treating them almost as separate sports under the umbrella of cricket. I think runs in white ball cricket, as admirable as they are, as entertaining as they are, can't be used as a guide to pick the test matches, and vice versa, really. Um, not that you would do. Not that you'd take an obdurate at 100 to put him into a T20 side, but somebody like Jason Roy, I mean, I was crying out last summer saying that's just the, the wrong selection, and I think, you know, certainly to put him at the top of the order, it was the wrong thing to do, and I think it was unfair on Jason Roy as well. You know, he was, he was putting him out there, under the microscope, in front of everybody, saying, right, dance and see if you can dance properly. And it, it just didn't work. And Joss yep. Butler's a different pace. Jeff, Joss Butler's obviously played more test match cricket. We've got more of a sample size with Joss Butler. But he mm-hmm. seems to be getting worse at it um, rather than better. <laughs> he seems, seems to be confused about what his role is in that side. He was picked off the back of, what was it, seven or eight um, half centuries for Mumbai Indians in the IPL, which I don't think is any gauge as to how, how he can play in a test match. And he had an initial start where he did okay in the England side in the test matches, but it just seems to be kind of falling away. And I heard you on the, on the Wisdom podcast saying, yeah, we, we, we all know that you know, he can be fantastic at test match level. Well, you look at his first-class record, you look at his test record, you look at him in the eyes when he's batting. That, to me, doesn't stand out as being true. You know, Josh Butler doesn't look like he's got the game to play test match cricket. 
Yeah. Okay. We'll get to we'll get to him very very quickly, and I'm not looking to delay on this. Right. I've been thinking about the Butler story all week and was bombarded on Twitter having the temerity to, to have not dropped him last night. I'm still recovering from that one, but then that's life, I suppose. I just want to, just want to ask you, just taking it back a step or two, you say that okay. you treat it as two different games, uh, the white ball and the red ball. Um, but the, the best players in cricket are generally pretty fabulous at both. So there, there is, there is an, an unavoidable correlation between the two formats. And while there are outliers within that analysis, of course, for me, the overriding truth from Stokes to Coley to De Villiers to Warner to Smith to Root is that the best players are the best players. Uh, one of the, the problems that we have with the scheduling as it is, is that you never get to know or you rarely get to know with certain players if they can actually translate from, specifically from white to red. And... The problem is red ball cricket is difficult and it requires a lot of effort and a lot of time and a lot of focus. And someone like Jason Roy, through not really much fault of his own, I mean, he has avoided IPL contracts. He's committed to playing red ball cricket as much as possible. But because of the nature of modern cricket and because of he's so in demand for England's T20 and 50 overs, he came into that into that experiment against the red ball, having played something like five red ball games in two years. It, it can only ever be a wild gamble. Uh, and it's, it's not necessarily the player's fault at all. I'd come back to you though quickly, Phil, by saying that that gamble, from what I've seen, has never worked, though. Taking somebody from white ball to red ball, I can't think of an example where somebody that's made their name in white ball cricket has suddenly been thrown into a test match and made it work for them, in an England shirt anyway. And the guys that you mentioned, you, know, you listed sort of five or six players. You can add in Kane Williamson to that as well. I saw he was 95 yeah. the other day. It was absolutely yeah. beautiful. But the, they are the creme de la creme, aren't they? They are top of the tree. They are going to go down as le- legends of the game because they can play all formats. And that is why they're going to go down as legends of the game to some degree. Um, yep. I've seen no evidence to suggest that Josh Butler has got that red ball part of his psyche because the, the, the things you need to play white ball cricket are completely different to the things you need to play red ball cricket. Yeah, up to a point. Okay, so let's, let's look, look at this Butler story again. He's played 23 test matches since his return um, to the side. So if we, if we park the early experiment, which wasn't a disaster, but wasn't a success and took place five years ago, uh, when he began in, in a hurry and he had a, uh, he had a poor, se- poor series against Australia in 2013, or 2015 rather. So we'll park that. That was half a decade ago. Since he came back into the side, which looked at the time like a, like a, a gamble by Ed Smith, and many still believe it's a gamble. And I don't disagree that it's a gamble either because the numbers are not irrefutable. But I don't think the numbers as they stand on their own is overwhelming confirmation that one of the most gifted cricketers in the world, not just in England, should just be jettisoned, moved to one side. And I want to break these numbers down. He's played 23 matches since the start of 2018, went out of nowhere and on the back of next to no Red Bull cricket experience in the last two, two years before that, he was brought back into that side. Um, he, he had a bad game at Lords. Then he smashed 80, uh, upper headingly, I think it was actually, against Pakistan, one man of the match there. For 13 matches since he returned, remember he returned as a specialist batsman, albeit one batting at seven, in an eccentric lineup. He averaged 41 batting at seven across 13 games. Okay, so from the, 
spring 2018 to spring 2019, and the end of that West Indies series, he averaged 41, including a brilliant series against India, against perhaps the best bowling attack, most complete bowling attack in the world, including a fourth-day hundred on a crap pitch at Old Trafford, uh, where he was technically excellent. Um, he made runs around that, different tempo runs as well. So he's averaged 41 across 13 games. Now, no one's saying that that's not bad for number seven. Then, then something happens last summer. Uh, over seven weeks, the nation gets totally whipped up in this carnage of a World Cup. And when that throw comes in from Jason Roy, the, kind of the whole legacy of, of that bunch of cricketers hinges on whether Josh Butler catches that ball or not. We know what happens thereafter. I interviewed Butler a week after that game, and he was in a strangely melancholic place as were a number of them, actually. I interviewed Chris Wokes as well. He said, I don't know what to do with myself. They had built their whole careers to that moment. Josh Butler, as a very modern cricketer, had probably built towards that moment more than any other because he's a white ball cricketer by definition or rather by reputation. A week after that, England played Ireland and Butler was rested. He went away for a few days. A week after that, Butler was padding up in a test match to go and face the best uh, pace attack in the world, to go and face Cummins and the like. He'd had no Red Bull cricket. He'd had not even had a practice game. He hadn't had a twos game. He hadn't had a four-day game for lengths. He'd gone out there and he scratched around, to nobody's surprise, against Australia in the Ashes. Uh, and he got a couple of, couple of low scores. The same thing happened in the second test, although he played quite nicely at, the, uh, at Lords in partnership with Stokes. He made 30-odd. Quite a useful innings in the context of that game. He had a bad game in the third test, and then in the fourth, he played nicely at Old Trafford, made 46 in the second innings, and then at the Oval, he made 70 and 47. At the Oval, England were 2-1 down going into that game. It was a huge game, massive game in the context of that summer. Butler went out there and played beautifully, again, against the crack, top-class pace attack. From there, having finished with 40, 40, 70 and 40 in the summer, he went to New Zealand, and they played that first test where they... They somehow contrived to lose by an innings. Butler was last out in that first innings for 46. Caught on the boundary. Do you remember when Mitchell Santner was on the, on, off the pitch and yep. then jumped back on? And Butler was caught on the boundary, last man out in that innings. In fact, he might have been the penultimate man out. But with Broad at the other end, you basically are last man. So he batted beautifully in that four, for that 40 odds, but ran out of partners. Ran out of partners. If someone had been at the other end, if Ollie Pope had been at the other end, nobody's telling me that he wouldn't have cruised to a 60, 70 and maybe more. If he'd managed to do that, I don't think we'd be having this conversation. I really don't. Now, Can I come back to you on that, Phil? I've, 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 yeah. I've let you lay out the case for the defence to some degree. Yeah. I mean, and, and just don't get me wrong. You know, we, we talked about I'd love to be proved wrong. In the same way with Joe Denley, Joss Butler. I mean, how many times do I get to see Jay Butler with two T's on the back of an England test shirt? I, didn't, I never, ever, and I want <laughs> to see it today. I'd love to see it today. But... From the start of 2019, he's averaging 22 in test matches. If you take that through to the middle of last summer, he's averaging 20. If you take it from the start of, well, through this winter, he's averaging 18. And it's going down. And I take your point about the World Cup, but you mentioned all of these great players around the world that can play all formats. Well, they still persist in playing brilliantly in all formats, regardless of what's going on around the periphery. And I take your point as well that the World Cup was huge for Joss Butler. And I've heard a lot of people in all sorts of different sports say you know I've got my gold medal in the Olympics what the hell do I do now because that's what I've been living my life for and all of a sudden I've done it now mm. what, door, mm. what door do I go through next kind of thing but 
Yeah. Can I just ask you then? So if we were having this conversation before the World Cup in June, after he'd come back into the side and over 13 matches was averaging 41 against India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka and the West Indies, would you still be saying then, he's just, it's just not happening? Butler's just not, he can't crack test cricket, he's never going to crack test cricket. Would you be saying that back then? If you go back through my Twitter feed, you'll see that I was, at that stage, I was starting to say, well, actually, he seems to be doing okay. And I hope he carries on to hope he carries on with it. And then mm-hmm. from there, he's kind of descended into the depths of being quite ordinary, really, I think. And I, mm-hmm. I, and I also take the point, Phil, about being left with the tail. But in a way, the reason he's been picked to be number seven is because he's capable of playing that white ball kind of innings towards the end of a, a test match. And most of the time when he gets that opportunity, and he, he sees it as a, I think people see it as a problem, Josh Butler, it's supposed to be an opportunity for Josh Butler to open his shoulders and hit test attacks all over the place and boost England up to another 100 more. But he tends mm-hmm. to get out, doesn't he? Because he, he, he tends to go along in first or second gear and there is nothing in between. And then all of a sudden he's up in fifth or sixth gear and he holds out somewhere. And I, so that one of the advantages of having him in the team doesn't seem to actually translate into success. I think what we saw in South Africa, certainly in the first part of that, that series, was, was a player who was unsure of how to approach an innings. He was trying to play sensible, grown-up test match cricket. Uh, and I think he lost something of the magic of what Josh Butler is as a player. The, the frustration for me watching him in South Africa was the innings was it Cape Town or was it Port Elizabeth? I think it was Port Elizabeth when he, he got to 29, came out and played quite nicely. I thought he played really nicely, actually. And got to 29 and he got a good ball from Pretorius. The only good ball Pretorius bowled all, all series. Nicked away, nicked off. Um, anyone would have nicked it. Any good player would have nicked it. Uh, the frustration with that one is that I thought he'd found the right balance. But the problem is 29 is a nothing score. You can't hang any kind of argument on a 29. I totally recognise that. But I just feel with Butler, we, we've been quite close to seeing the, the fruition of this extraordinary talent. And he's played 23 games for England since he was recalled. 23 Red Bull games all of them in test cricket, you know, I still think that there is, there's things that he's learning about himself and about his game, but I don't think, my personal feeling is I don't think he's very far away from it. And with a player as special as that, with two huge marquee series coming up in India and then Australia, I want to be absolutely sure that Josh Butler can't crack it yet. And considering that for 13 of those 23 games, the evidence was pretty secure that he was playing very well, averaging over 40 from number seven and eight, which is excellent by any level. I don't think we can absolutely confirm yet that the bloke that does, just doesn't have it. I'm not saying that this conversation you know, is, one way, is one way by any means. I can absolutely understand the position that other people take on this. But I want to know with Butler for sure that he can't crack it. And I don't know that yet. He had, he had one really good year. And he seemed to be cracking test match cricket. Well, Johnny Bairstow had an even better year once. And I know yeah. there's a bit of Yorkshire bias coming out on this. But he was absolutely superb. He was setting world records yeah. for the world wicketkeeper batsman. And yet he's found yep. himself out of the team plenty of times over the last sort of 18 months or so. He's had the same white ball issues with the World Cup and everything else. So some people seem to get more rope to hang themselves with than other people. And I, I just think, you know, if it was anybody else, if it, say it was Ben Folkes who had his opportunity since Sri Lanka when he did so well, yep. yet from the start of, of 2019 he'd only averaged 22, we would mm-hmm. be saying we need to find another wicketkeeper batsman here, don't we? So are we playing by different rules with Josh Butler just because he can hit a white ball quite a long way? I hear what you're saying. Um, Johnny Bairstow is still very much a part of, of 
this test match set up, as well as obviously a key man in the other stuff. He, he may well be batting first drop for England uh, in a couple of weeks' time, or in a few weeks' time. Johnny Best, they will play more test cricket for England. I, I don't have much doubt about that. Where and under what guise? We're not, we're not quite sure. But I don't think Bairstow has been jettisoned um, forever from the, from the Red Bull team. Do you? Do you not envisage him playing? Absolutely, absolutely not. And no, if you, if you read that piece in The Guardian, he's coming back into bat at number yeah. three, which, again, I, yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I'm very much uh, a person that likes to see somebody. It's a bit like England when they, in, in the football, when they didn't know quite how to fit three world-class players in midfield. You have Paul Scholes playing left wing, and you're thinking, well, that's yeah. not quite worth it. Um, yeah. you, know, you play players in the positions that have got them to where they've got to and, and Johnny's always been kind of number five for Yorkshire even when he's been playing as a batsman so yeah. having him at number yeah. three Gary Balance when he was picked for England was a number five for, for Yorkshire and they tried to shoehorn him into the Jonathan Trott role which kind of changed his yeah. career dramatically and now he's been sidelined and everybody says that he's a joke when I suggest that he should play for England again in, in Test Match Cricket so in the same way Jason Roy put him up as opener when he'd never really done that job at all in first-class cricket. Play people in yep. the positions that they've made their name. And then, then if they don't succeed, they have got no complaints. It's impossible, I think, to fall back, or, or it's unwise to fall back on stats. That, and I'm not saying you're doing this, but there is this tendency, especially amongst the, you know, the Twitterati and so on, right? There is a tendency to fall back on numbers and obsess over numbers, over certain sample sizes, tailored to suit one's argument. Now, no one's going to sit here and say that Johnny Bairstow can't play test cricket. But if you were to take a certain sample size from Johnny Bairstow's test match career, then you would, ha- you would find a run of games, a dozen games, where he averages no more than 20-odd, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not sitting here saying that Johnny Bairstow can't play test cricket. Uh, and, and clearly you wouldn't be either. So we go back to the Butler question. He's clearly, over the last 10 games, under, underperformed. He's had one or two nice moments against Australia at the Oval, et cetera, et cetera, but one or two nice moments in, a, in amongst a run of stodgy form. But I can't put my hand on my heart and say that that is overwhelming, irrefutable proof and evidence that this bloke, perhaps one of the most gifted cricketers in the world, a superstar of the world game, revered around the world, I don't think that confirms that the bloke can't play test cricket. And until we have that confirmation, I'm still going to be on the fence I'm still going to be standing back from wading in on the Butler story. I just think ultimately he's too, too precious, just like I think Bairstow is too precious, just to cast aside because they've had a, a run of bad form. One, one final point on the Butler thing. Um, you, you mentioned the, kind of the stresses and strains and the, the emotional turmoil that the World Cup win brought a number of different players, but just Butler yeah, potentially um, in particular. Yeah. With so many global one-day tournaments and with just Butler... Absolutely, top ten world class player in in terms of uh, white yeah. ball cricket, no doubt about it. Is there an yeah. argument to say so much cricket's being played, so much stress is being put on you? We're asking an awful lot of you, Joss. Maybe yeah. red ball cricket was something that we can take you out of, concentrate on the white ball stuff. We'll get the best out of you in that because you're undisputedly one of the best in the world at that. And maybe red yeah. ball is the chance for you to take some some time off. Yeah, look, I think that is a very very persuasive point point of view. And I can absolutely understand why someone would, would take up that position. I don't, I don't discredit it at all. I also want to add, I like Ben Folkes a lot as a cricketer, a hell of a lot as a cricketer. This is a 55-45% for me, really. I think if they go with Folkes and if they give Folkes a run across those two tests in Sri Lanka, 
and then into the summer, then I, then I would respect that. I would understand why they would want to go down that road. I'm looking further down the line. I'm looking at five tests against some top quality slow bowling. And then I'm looking at that Australia series when Butler would be 31 on true flat pitches uh, against real quick. And I, I, wa- I would still want Butler in my side. If, those, if, if that Ashes series were to take place tomorrow, then I would undoubtedly want Butler in my side. Um, and folks, I would, I would want him on the sidelines, which is no criticism of folks at all, but I just think that Butler is too precious a cricketer to, to discard at this stage. And come the big, the big ones, the real marquee series, I want my best players sniffing around, and I still think he may well be in that, that category of being at, in our best 11. But look, we're never going to agree on this one, and you know, I'm, I've already what? got the tin hat on, waiting for, for a weekend Twitter fun on the back of this one. So I'll clip out your most contentious statements and stick them out as a little clip on their own and make sure no doubt. Put your <laughs> just one one word answer to this then we'll, we'll we'll round off that subject if you take in wicket keeping batting and their overall overall kind of performance and overall contribution to a potential england test side of folks Bairstow and butler you i guess your your choice would be butler with it as the, as the man that can deliver the most across all form, forms of the uh, the job talking only test cricket i think in sri lanka in particular there is a very strong case to play folks for two test matches in sri lanka I'm quite comfortable with Test cricket being a squad game. We, we fetishise the, the final 11 all the time, but I think the way, the way cricket is played these days, it's a squad game of 15-16. You see fast bowlers changed around and alternated. You see it with spinners as well coming into play in certain games, certain tours, less so in others. I don't have a problem necessarily with, with doing that with a wicketkeeper either. I can see the value in saying to Butler, go away. Go and reset for a couple of months. Don't, don't get involved in two test matches in Sri Lanka at the end of a, of, a, of a year where he's played for 12 months straight. I can absolutely see the logic in that, and I'm not against that. But then after that, for me, it would be a clean slate. And then you would look again at bringing Butler back in for the, for the, the meat and potatoes of a summer, looking forward to those huge away series over the next two winters. We saw it with folks in Sri Lanka last time out, came in, kept really well, batted well, made that 100, of course, that fairy tale 100. Uh, and then Bairstow came back in into the side and, and, and things changed around again. I think that's just the nature of the game. I, I don't have an issue with that. I don't think these positions need to be sacrosanct. I think it's okay to play, to work in modern cricket, and modern test cricket in particular, with a squad of 15, 16, and pick the right, the right players for the right moments of, of, of that you know, huge and incredibly dense test match program. You know, they play so much cricket. I think it's inevitable sometimes that you're going to get fall-offs, you're going to get injuries, you're going to get motivational questions, and you're going to get occasions when maybe you do have to just tap the player on the shoulder and say, just go and have a break for a bit. As they did with though, they may well want to do that with Butler for these two test matches. I wouldn't have an issue with that. But I, I would want to see Butler very much in conversation for the next 20 test matches after these two coming up. Phil Walker, that was the longest one-word answer I think anybody's ever given me on the Did you say one-word? I didn't hear that. Sorry. <laughs> oh, Butler. Butler. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's, no, it's, 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 it's fine. 
I've been fair, David. He's the one that can give the most contribution. But then I guess I would do because I've, I've watched him since he was a kid, and I've got a massive amount of time for him. And I think a lot of people that are knocking him at the moment forget what he's capable of. But uh, that's probably for a different podcast entirely. When I invited you on, Phil, we were going to talk about the World T20. We were probably going to go further down into the bowlers and all kinds of things. But I think I've kept you long enough. We'll get you back on later on in the year, and we can do the World T20 then. But Phil Walker, for now. Thank All you right. very much for joining me on the Cricket Budget Podcast. And obviously buy the magazine, buy the Wisdom Cricket Monthly, because I think I'm in this one, aren't I? Of course, of course. Yeah, you are in this. You're part of a seven-man seven panel discussing the ups and downs and horror shows of the upcoming hundreds as part of our big state of play issue. The magazine came out Thursday this week. Uh, please, folks, uh, go to wisdom.com, go and find out about it one of the better issues that we've done indeed one of the better magazines out there full stop and all the better for your presence in it james absolutely absolutely <laughs> phil thank you very much for joining me this week cheers mate pleasure it's that badger style thanks to phil our verbal blows on the just butler affair halted for the time being at least and now as promised at the start of this week's podcast Mark Dexter, Oliconian Cricket Club. Tragedy is probably too strong a word, but the pavilion burnt down by an arson attack in August of last year. They're trying to rebuild that great cricket club from the dust, from the ashes. Mark comes on now to tell us how you might be able to help. It's that Badger style. Now on the Cricket Badger podcast, we're going to try and raise a little bit of money for a good cause. When Ben Stokes was doing his amazing feat of battering the Australians into the West End at uh, Headingley, scoring that incredible century to take England home, 25th of August last year, just down the road in Ilkley, something a little bit more sad was happening. The Alicarnian Cricket Club Pavilion was burnt down that same day. It was an arson attack, and Mark Dexter joins me. Mark, people will know you from bringing the news, the scores, the updates from uh, for Sky back in the day. I knew you at Headingley when you came along to Port Yorkshire in doing that for Sky, but you're involved now in trying to get the Alicarnian Cricket Club Pavilion basically back up from the ashes. Yes, I am, James. I mean, I am a, a, a cricket fanatic pretty much like you are, and yes, those days uh, covering county championship cricket for, for Sky were, uh, were great days, but I've also always been involved with Olicarnian Cricket Club in Ilkley, and um, I'm one of the trustees there now, having coached for a, a good while and played for it previously. Yeah, we woke up on the, the morning of the 25th, and it was a, a day that Ben Stokes uh, rescued the ashes for England, but we, we were looking at ashes of our own with a smouldering ruin of a pavilion, and and, and pretty much all that memorabilia from a hundred years of having a cricket club went up in smoke thanks to an arson attack. And they've never caught the people who did it, but basically we prefer to look forward these days. This is a time now, isn't it, to look on and make sure that uh, the other kind of is back up and running and, and sorted out. And to do that, you need quite significant funds, don't you? Well, we do, and, and we like to think of ourselves as being a club that's uh, contributing to, to the wider game. I mean, on the day that uh, Ben Stokes scored his amazing century at Headingley, the 12th man that day, bringing bats out to, uh, to the great man, was a guy called George Hill, who's the vice-captain of the England Under-19s tour uh, out in South Africa at the Under-19s World Cup at the moment. And George started with us as a, as a seven-year-old. He was with us right the way through to being a 14-, 15-year-old until he went off to Sedba Private School to, to um, continue his studies and his cricket uh, over there. But he was involved in the Yorkshire setup with us uh, pretty much from, from uh, under-11s or so. And he's now a junior pro at, at Yorkshire, and we hope that he's going to break into the Yorkshire full side in the next couple of years or so. So, you know, we have been producing 
players over the course of the, the last few years. I, I, I know Harry Brook uh, had a couple of years with us when he was a seven-year-old before he, he went to Burley and Wharfdale Cricket Club, which was uh, you know, wh- where they really brought him on. But yeah, we, as a club, we need to raise about £75,000 to get across the line. It's three hundred and fifty grand to uh, create this new pavilion. We've just submitted a, a planning application for it. Uh, it looks terrific, but we are going to f- have to find another 75 grand, uh, and so there's going to be a fair bit of fundraising going on, I think, over the course of the next 12 months or so. You sent me a video the other day of the new pavilion and the, the architects talking on that video to yourself, and the, the new Olicani pavilion, once it's up and running, if you can get that money, it looks absolutely fantastic. It's a, a nice, bright, breezy, fresh-looking pavilion that will be really good on the on the edge of that ground. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the great thing about... I mean, look, it was a, a, a real body blow when uh, this happened. Nobody wanted to see their pavilion go up in smoke but once we've got our heads around it we, we've turned it into a positive really I mean the people of Ilkley and, and wider than that have been so supportive we've had all sorts of offers for the last three weeks of the season we had uh, people turning up with cakes and things for the cricket tees who we'd never seen before and uh, people offering to, to do the, the curtains or the wiring or the the, you know, the electrics, the plastering, whatever it is at the, at the cricket club. So once we, we do get planning consent and we start the, the process, there are lots of people from across the, the town and, and beyond who have offered to, to help make this thing happen. So, you know, it's drawn us closer to the community of Ilkley uh, and that's been a, a really positive thing. I think, you know, for all the small clubs out there, we, we sometimes look at ourselves and think of ourselves as islands out there just playing our cricket and a few people watching us on a Saturday in the league. But, but actually, something like this makes you realise that you are part of the wider community and, uh, and that, that people do care about, about regional and, and local grassroots cricket. And that's been really heartening. So, yes, we're, we're going to have to raise 75 grand. We've got a, a three-day Spirit of Cricket Festival that we're hoping to be able to do on the, on, in a big marquee on the outfield at the end of the season. Uh, we're just waiting for the events licence now. And if that happens, then uh, you know, I think that will not just be a, a way of raising money for the cricket club, but it will also be a thank you to the people of Ilkley and beyond and a, a big celebration really of, of what this I, I, I hesitate to use the word tragedy but it, it was a real body blow to us that this real body blow has, has meant to us but we've turned it into a positive and uh, and hopefully it's something that that will stand us in good stead for the future and we'll have a brand spanking new great looking pavilion in, in years to come I noticed on the video that you sent me, Mark, that the, the architect that he's donated his time for free as well, hasn't he? And yeah, it's, it's fantastic, isn't it? Because cr- cricket is, you know, you get the hashtag cricket family on Twitter and all that kind of thing. So w- when things like this happen, it really is that, isn't it? You know, people do come together. Because a cricket club, you know, like any sports club, does bring the community together and it's important, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, Horsley Townsend's uh, local architects offered to, to do this for nothing. But, I mean, they're, and that's fantastic, but they're one of, you know, we've got a list of about 30 or 40 people or organisations who've come out of the woodwork and said, look, we'd like to do this for you when, when you, the, the, the appropriate time comes. You know, there's a, somebody down the road who, who makes curtains said, look, we'll do all the blinds and the curtains for nothing. You know, I mean, that's, that's not a small thing to offer to, to, to somebody. And so I, I think, you know, I, I don't want to get too schmaltzy about this, but I've never experienced anything that has been quite so moving in the way that, you know, so many people who don't, don't know many of us who've come together and have offered their, their help and assistance and, and uh, emotional support as much as anything. And that's been really quite moving. And, and I think, you know, when this process, in the, hopefully in, in a year, 15 months' time, when the new pavilion is done, I think we'll, we'll look back on this and think, well, you know, it's been one of the great times of our lives, really. It's, it's, it's been hugely moving. What's your highest score on that ground, Mark? <laughs> Not 
so many. It's less than a century. It's over 50. Uh, I think I've bored the backside off people opening the batting for many years. And But I'll tell you what, what I did do. I, I took a... We decided to join a, start a, a junior section about 15 years ago. Uh, and, and one of the local teachers who, at the club, uh, who was a sports teacher, and I set up the junior section. And I, I thought, I'd better go and learn how to coach. So I went and did the old ECB Level 1 course. And then I did the UKCC Level 2. And, and those two courses taught me so much about the game and about batting itself. And, and I started scoring runs at that point. So, you know, anybody who's out there who's thinking about maybe doing a, a coaching course, it won't just help you coach. It will help you with your, your own game as well. And so, you know, you suddenly start understanding a little bit more about how, to, how best to get into line and how to get your head over the ball and all that kind of stuff that we talk about when we, we're reporting on it or watching it on, on TV. But actually, you understand that some of the intricacies about doing it a little bit better yourself, and suddenly you start scoring a few runs, and you think, oh, I can maybe play this game just a little bit. <laughs> that really does strike a chord with me, because I did exactly the same as you did. I did the old Level 1 course, which I think is now the equivalent of Level 2, but you just basically over two weekends, the one I did. And the, yeah. it, it does do exactly that, because it strips you back down, and you're doing quite basic stuff with the grip, and, and all of a sudden, I went back into the season after that, and I, I scored more runs as well. It is bizarre, isn't it, how... Just kind of stripping back your game and, and learning a little bit about the, the foundations, what your game should be, and trying to remember the foundations actually does help you. Yeah, and, and do you know, I think, um, I, and this is only just my opinion, but I, having done the old ECB level one, I, I thought that was more about the technique of, uh, of, of batting and bowling and fielding and the UKCC level two, which is the sort of standard cricket, uh, you know, grassroots cricket club um, coach uh, that you know the, the, the level one is more about uh, supporting the, the, the coach but the level two was more about how to coach I felt rather than the technique so you know they, they did give you different sorts of things and you know when you go back to basics and you start coaching the kids and you bring out the enthusiasm in them and you can start harnessing it a little bit uh, and you get them working on things in the indoor nets during the, the, the January, February, March time, and then you get out onto the grass in, in, in April, it, it does make such a difference. And you, when you see your kids enjoying their game and, uh, and flourishing, then, you know, you, you're giving a little bit back to the game and hopefully, you know, setting up the, the, some kids to, to enjoy 30, 40 years of, of playing cricket for, for the next few years. And, you know, that can only be a good thing. You, it's good to try and give a little bit back and try and pass the... I suppose you're passing the, the baton on to the next generation, aren't you? And, and giving, hopefully they'll have the pleasure of the game that, that, that we've had. Yeah, because we're far too old now to play it ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, we've all been there, haven't we, as, a, as 10 and 11-year-olds, bright-eyed, looking at the, uh, the, the world ahead of us, thinking, oh, we could be the next Ben Stokes, we could be the next Joe Root or whatever. And, yeah, it, it's, it's fantastic to see. When, when I've been to events and seen young kids running around, you're thinking... Yeah, you lucky little what's it? Because you, you, you've, you've got a whole cricket career ahead of you, whether it's professional or whether it's just playing club cricket. There is no better sport to get involved in, and uh, you know what you learn from your teammates and what you learn to play cricket. I think is, is is very very important to people, and that's why cricket clubs like Olikanian are very very important to communities. I mentioned hashtag cricket family and. People listening to this, cricket badges everywhere, whether you're in England, whether you're around the world or whatever, you'll be struck by this because you'll all have had your own local cricket clubs, you'll have all had your own routes into cricket. If people out there are touched by this story, Mark, and they want to help in whatever way they can, how do they get involved in that? Well, they can, they can get in touch with me, Mark, at dextermedia.co.uk. Uh, that's probably the, the, the best way. We did have a, a Just Giving page for the four, four months after the, 
the initial fire, which has raised £20,000, uh, and we did have uh, a pretty decent insurance in cover, but we, we, as I say, we are still short. So uh, getting in touch with me, mark at dextermedia.co.uk is probably the best way, and we will welcome with open arms anybody who wants to get involved with us because, you know, we are a, we're a, we're a, a family club and we are, uh, you know, we like to think of ourselves as being welcoming to anybody of any standard to, to come and play some cricket and get involved and uh, there's no better way. You, you, you'll know this, James, that, you, you know, you, it, because you spend so much time with people on and off the field in cricket, and unlike football and rugby where you may be paying for 80 or 90 minutes, you spend so much time involved at cricket that you make friendships that last you for life and, you know, there's a lot of value in, in that as well as just the love of the game. Absolutely, totally agree. And I guess one of the, the sub things of this is that well, there have been things in that original pavilion that you just can't get back to. You, you know, the, the history of the club and some of the pictures on the wall and some of the old school books and stuff will have just disappeared forever. Probably that's the, the most heartbreaking aspect of the whole thing, really. I mean, the, you know, we, we, we have stuff dating back virtually 100 years. That's all gone now. But there's nothing you can do about it. There's no point crying over spilt milk. You've got to look forward. What we did do from the, the embers of the... The, the fire, we did find, can you believe, some charred bales, very much like the original ashes, and, and so we, we took them away, and they are being made into a trophy, and so when the club, when the pavilion is done uh, by this time, hopefully, or by April next year, we are going to have, at some point uh, in the summer of 2021, uh, an official opening, and we're going to organise a, a match between an Olicarnian 11 and uh, a team of uh, overseas Australians who come and play in the local leagues and will play for the Ollie's Ashes for this new trophy and I think that will be a, a, a fitting way of drawing a line under the whole sort of uh, escapade and, and then looking forward to the future and going back to what we do best which is playing league cricket on a, on a Saturday and a Sunday and getting uh, kids playing and, and, and grooming them so that they can play senior cricket when they get a little bit older as well. The parallels with what Ben Stokes was doing just down the road that same day, that tragic day, they, they, they will go on into the future and uh, hopefully uh, the Olicani interview will be back up and running and that club will thrive in the future. Mark, thanks very much for joining me on the Cricket Badger podcast this week. We'll stay in touch. Hopefully we'll be able to help you. you know, if there's anything else we can do on the Cricket Badger podcast to promote it, then uh, please let us know. But good luck with your fundraising and hopefully that new pavilion that I've seen the pictures of will rise up from those ashes and it'll be a, a thriving club moving forward. Thanks very much, James. Good to talk to you. Thank you very much for listening to the podcast. The listenership is going up every single week. Thanks so much for your ears. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you for your likes, your subscribes. It's on every platform around the world. So make sure you listen. Tell your friends and contact the show too. Let us know what you think. Give us your ideas for future shows at cricket underscore badger on the Twitter feed. Cricket badger at hotmail.com on the emails thank you so much badges keep listening thanks for listening then this week to the cricket badger podcast thanks to phil walker of wisdom cricket monthly thanks to mark dexter of the olicarnian cricket club good luck to them as they try and get that great old club back up and running at full speed hopefully you can help in some way to getting them to achieve their goals if you've liked this week's Cricket Badger podcast or any of the 112 previous ones, plenty on the back catalogue if you want to go on and search and listen to some of the old episodes. Still, a lot of them are very relevant because the Cricket Badger quick questions and the interviews that we do with various players are quite timeless, really. So if you've got a spare afternoon, pick it on. But if you have liked it, please like, subscribe, add some nice comments. It all helps to boost the reputation, get other people listening and to make sure that we can go on into the future. Thanks as well to the experience 
Experience Travel Group for supporting the podcast now into the month of February. If you want to get out to Sri Lanka to support England, then there's no better travel group to get you out there. Got a good issue planned for next week as well. So if you subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're on, you'll be informed by that issue has come out as well. But plenty more good guests planned for the Cricket Badger podcast. But until we meet again, Badgers, next week, enjoy your cricket. Podcast Network. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.